Hello everyone. I am Divya Shekhar and this is from the bookshelves of Forbes India. Today's episode is all about private equity. Rather, how private equity has the power to both build and wreck economies. I'm really excited to be speaking with Gretchen Morgenson and Joshua Rosner about their new book, These Are the Plunderers: How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. Gretchen Morgenson is a senior financial reporter for the NBC News Investigative Unit. A former stockbroker, she won the Pulitzer Prize in 2002 for her trenchant and incisive reporting on Wall Street. Joshua Rosner is the managing director at independent research consultancy Graham Fisher and Co. He advises regulators, policymakers, and institutional investors on banking and financial markets. So Gretchen and Josh, your book is a well-researched critique on how private equity firms in America, uh, the ones that specialize in buying companies, load them with debt and then completely squeeze them for profits. So my first question to you is uh, what do you hope to achieve with this book? Well, I think what we wanted to do was to educate people first and foremost about the pernicious uh aspects of this kind of business model and it's really an unsustainable business model um for the long term but we also wanted to kind of spotlight because it's been a stealth takeover really mm-hmm. of many 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 companies and uh, people just do not understand the degree to which private equity runs their lives and Josh and I felt like that was something that people needed to understand and needed to know what it meant for them. But Josh, what did you what do you think? Yeah, no, I agree. I, I mean, it I think we were both sort of uh um bothered by the fact that people not only don't really understand the degree to which this is uh um part of the takeover of global capitalism, but also that it really is a uh, is contrary to the stated goals of um capital markets being used for efficiency and gaining right. efficiencies and economic you know efficiencies over time and rather this is really just a churning almost a pirateering yeah. of of economics as i was reading the book i was also noting the various terms that you've used for pe folks which i had not come across you know as written in that context apart from plunderers you know money spinners by odd boys pillagers and pirates like you said so you know so was the the thesis was to to explicitly prove how dangerous pe is and uh, the adverse impact that it has on society and the economy right yeah i mean i, I think i would i would change it slightly right. how dangerous it can be if hmm. it's not done appropriately in other words it's almost the use of high amounts of leverage debt and the extraction of profits rather than the repair of companies or the or the improvement of companies is private equity done wrong and unfortunately we've all gotten used to private equity done wrong as opposed to private equity done right which is the focus on long term improvements to a company's profitability and performance and this is something else so it's not private equity per se yeah. it's the way we accept it today as commonly practiced Right. Can you give our listeners a background on how the greed is good era started? It was sometime in the seventies, right? And I think the middle of inflation, stock market prices going down, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah, it was. Uh, in the very beginning, there was a real 
arbitrage, right? Uh, there was a real difference between what companies were valued at in the you know public stock market and what their real worth was. Because of course, during the 70s, we had stagflation, we had the oil crisis, we had terrible uh, inflation, and it really had done significant damage to the United States stock market. And so initially, when these uh, firms started to get together and and uh, take over companies using this heavy leverage, there were genuine differences between the valuations that they could capitalize on and, you know, perhaps increase efficiency and then flip them for a profit. Well, those those days are pretty much over. Um, these companies, as Josh referenced earlier, it's now become a churn. They're selling companies to each other. They're even selling companies to the same companies, different funds. So it really, the arbitrage, much of it has gone. Right. You do mention uh, barbarians at the gate, uh, the fall of RJR Nabisco in your book, which is that that book's like a classic about classic about PE greed. Uh, but how have things changed in private equity since the fall of RJR Nabisco? Well, I think they've changed in that that book was called Barbarians at the Gate. Right. No, no, one, no one is calling these people barbarians anymore, for starters, okay? Yeah. Um, they're now lionized in the business media. They are now celebrated. They are billionaires. They are people who are revered and who people emulate and they want to go and work for them. So just even that alone, you know, it was looked at as a kind of it was looked on askance, as it were, you know, the RJR deal. And in fact, it was a very good sort of turning point for people to notice that, yes, jobs were lost as a result of this, even though it wasn't highlighted at the time. And right. so it was a harbinger of things to come for sure. But now, as Josh noted earlier, it's become so accepted and in fact celebrated that yeah. it's a complete, it's almost uh, turned upside down. And it's uh, it's as you write, uh, the term private equity is, uh, is, it seems like a very soft and sophisticated term and it's almost sort of seems like a misnomer. Yes, it's very genteel. They didn't like yeah. being called leveraged buyout kings, certainly didn't like being called raiders. Um, and so they took on this name private equity, which is really a misnomer because um, they don't use a lot of equity. They use a lot of debt. And uh, it's very interesting that they kind of chose that. But, you know, it's um, it's advertising. It's uh, it's not reality. Right. And you also mentioned how there is hardly any transparency in their complex financial dealings. There's not much data available. So when you went about writing this book and researching for it, what did you encounter and how do you how do you think what what do you, how do you think what helps the firms keep it this way and what was your experience like while putting this book together? So I mean I, I would start with pointing out that when they take over a company they don't take over the company under the name of the private equity firm right, right. it's bought into a fund and then they have investors in the fund um, and so that itself creates this this disconnection, this this disjointed understanding of the public. Because when you take over RJR Nabisco, it's still called RJR Nabisco, as example, 
right? When you take yeah. over a physician practice organization, a hospital, an energy company, it still retains, for the most part, the original name. And so that in itself becomes both a psychological and a information disadvantage to the public uh, understanding the takeover. Yeah, I think it would be fun if we actually had, you know, um, if we we forced these firms to actually put their names on the companies they buy. So it would be like the Blackstone apartment buildings, our okay. apartment complex where you live, Josh, right? Uh, it would be the uh, KKR emergency room, um, you know, the uh, the Carlisle veterinarian, mm -hmm. um, you know, so to let people know that this is not a small business that is owned by a, a person who's, you know, interested in serving their customers. This is a business that's being taken over to extract assets and income from so that it can be sold soon. You know, yeah. when these people take over companies, they actually have at the time of the takeover a valuation that they have assigned to the company that they want to achieve on a sale. So we're not talking about we're investing here for the long haul. We're going to pour money into this company to make it better. It's all about the exit number that they have assigned and what their profit is, yeah. they hope. Right. Let's, let's bring it back a little bit for your listeners, if we can, just by way of how it happens. So pick your private equity firm raises funds that they are going to use to invest in a portfolio of companies that they're going to take over. And those funds typically historically have come from institutional investors, pensions, yeah. retirement funds, insurance companies, et cetera. Um, first of all, by the way, just as an aside, the private equity firms are trying to change that now. So they also can get your money, individuals money, but, but let's, stop there. So they put together a fund and they invest in the fund. They invest the funds into a series of companies. And as Gretchen said, they have a target exit hmm. financially and time-wise. The problem is that if they don't meet that exit, they've gotten in the habit now of just flipping it to their next fund. Hmm. And there's it, the accounting treatment is a little bit fallacious because it's marked to model. In other words, they get to gen generally assign the value right. as opposed to being the market assigning the value. Right. So when they flip it from one fund that they have to the next fund because they didn't meet the target, they're actually to some degree um, misleading the investors in the fund mm -hmm. of what the value was. And the investors in the first fund that held it would get a mismark that would overvalue it as a way of making it whole, but then you're just rolling the problem forward hmm. for the next fund. Right. And so it, it's sort of a, become a game, a dangerous game. It's also interesting how pension funds are among the front runners that fuel these uh, private equity funds. Um, as you write, you know, that's ironical because the rich private equity folks often get richer at the cost of workers and consumers and their pensions. So how do you see this trend playing out going forward? Well, that is one of the big paradoxes of this business model, that the biggest funders of it are the very people whose beneficiaries are hurt most often by these business practices. And so it really has been 
the justification by pension funds that we need the higher returns that private equity funds deliver. And so therefore, we're willing to do that. But now we're starting to see uh, that the returns are actually declining and reverting to the norm. They're reverting to almost an S&P 500 index fund. Uh, And so you really have to question whether uh, pension funds who have been making this argument that the higher returns are the reason they're in it, what are they going to do now when these funds are not generating the returns that they used to? Mm -hmm. And And when you start to have headline issues and problems with companies that are in these pensions investments in private equity, that becomes even more interesting because, uh, for instance, Blackstone owns a company in the U.S. Hmm. that cleans slaughterhouses, Hmm. and they have been found to have hired over 100 children to clean slaughterhouses across the Midwest. It's a horrific, dangerous, um, bloody business, but they were hiring children. Hmm. So uh, suddenly this became a problem for Blackstone and the company that it owned that was doing this hiring. Hmm. So I called up CalPERS, which is the big California public pension fund, and they happen to be in the Blackstone Fund that owns the slaughterhouse yes. cleaning company. And I said, how do you feel about these child labor violations? How are, are you going to rethink your investment with Blackstone if this kind of thing happens? And they refused to talk to me about it. Right. So it's very interesting that they don't seem to want to face the music. Right. And that, that goes that goes to, by the way, the function in many cases of how they're paid. Mm-hmm. And that's a piece of this that isn't really discussed. So that mark to model myth that I was talking yeah. about before, yeah. where they get to mismark, or I should say choose their own valuation. Overvalue. Uh, yeah. Right. Or overvalue. Um, that advantage is the managers of the pension funds because they get to tell the yeah. the, the investors yeah. to whom they manage, for whom they manage the money that it performed better. Well, the problem is in many of the cases of the pensions and the endowments, the pension managers are paid either in whole or through bonuses in part mm. based upon the net asset value rather than the ultimate exit performance or real mark-to-market performance of the fund. So they have an invent, an incentive to keep this fallacy going. And right. so even though it's to the disadvantage of the retirees, the pensioners, it is to the benefit quite often of the managers of those funds. Even though this the, the returns argument does not hold much water, do you see uh, enough awareness among consumers, among investors about uh, these practices? And as you ask somewhere in the earlier chapters of the book, is there sufficient outrage uh, over how uh, this might impact them? I think the outrage is growing. I, I think people are becoming more aware. I think that you see more sort of chatter about... Um, the downsides of private equity, you know, there have been other books written about it, but I I still think we have a long way to go to educating the individual investors. And that's a problem because, Divya, they're coming for those people's money now. The pension 
the the pool of assets that pensions and endowments and and institutions have provided for private equity is is they want to expand beyond that. Mm-hmm. It's not enough for them. And so now they're coming for individuals' money. And so that's another reason why educating people about these practices is so important. So they don't get kind of sucked into this, um, you know, uh, really pernicious investment. Right. And, and they're coming for individuals' monies in more than just the obvious way. Yeah. They're also coming for it through their acquisitions of insurance companies. Right. So the these same firms, private equity firms, have many of them taken over or bought large stakes in insurance companies, both as a way to have a place to place the private equity um, assets that they're purchasing, but also to fund the acquisitions through insurance purchases or, or, or payments premiums. And I think that's a piece of it that's really not considered at all. And that's where, to me, the most significant future systemic risk comes from. So we can talk about the weight that and the drag that private equity has on real economic performance. We could talk about the extraction of wealth. We can talk about all of the other problems with private equity. But once you marry it to the ownership of pension obligations, and then have the incentive to invest what used to be stayed conservative um, monies into long-term obligations to match, uh, long-term assets to match long-term obligations, you're creating that opportunity for them now to put the assets into risky private equity to try and fill the holes in pension funds, retirement funds. And so at some point, we may find that this mythology of the value is just building a bigger and bigger hole in the retirement assets of of future retirees. And I think that's the problem that we're not paying enough attention to. Regulators aren't paying attention. Legislators aren't paying attention. And unfortunately, we tend not to until after a crisis is in front of us. Right. But can we uh, lay all our chips on a regulatory push for change since I think the PE is a very powerful lobby and they do their fair bit of legal wrangling as well. So, well, as Josh points out, you know, we're often uh, behind the eight ball where regulators are concerned. They come in after a crisis and then they have to clean it up. They're not proactive. They're reactive. Um, we are again in that situation, but yes, you are 100% correct. These are very powerful, um, very prosperous entities that can spend hundreds of millions of dollars lobbying to achieve their ends. Um, so yes, it's a very, very powerful adversary. And no, I agree with you. We cannot simply rely on regulators to do the right thing. But we are starting to see some evidence that, for instance, antitrust regulators in this country are starting to question some of the uh, private equity um, purchases for monopoly tendencies. That's that's a change, and that's a positive change. Um, but the SEC has done very little, um, and it, the state insurance regulatory framework in this country, we do not have a federal insurance regulator, and so the states are in charge of regulating insurance, which means that they can be weak links in that process. 
No, and, and I think you're, you're raising the right question. The other piece is, no, it, it's not going to be just regulatory or legislative. We are starting to see employees at the firms taken over by private equity, either through their unions or otherwise, <clears throat> start taking action and be bringing awareness to the issues. Um, I think that really, at the end of the day, this is only going to be solved by pressure on the pension funds, the endowments, really to back away from this industry, um, where it extracts the wealth of the industry. Right. I also think that the um, rising interest rates are having a very, very bad effect on the business model. And that, too, is going to have an impact. And as these companies struggle with their debt loads, because what they do is they issue floating rate debt. They don't issue fixed rate debt. So their debt rises as interest rates rise. What you'll start to see, and we are already seeing this, is bankruptcies among these companies. And that will gain attention from people as well. And it will also, you know, lower the returns, obviously, if one of the portfolio or 10 of the portfolio companies go bankrupt. So I think that the market, the the economic um, environment in which these people act now is really pressuring them as well. So here I want to talk about how private equity folks are often lionized in the media. But before we get to that, I want to first zoom into the presence of private equity in healthcare. Uh, You talk about it quite extensively in the book. Um, In India, for instance, as per estimates from EY, healthcare has garnered close to 27,000 crore worth of investments from private equity. Uh, Blackstone made its first ever healthcare bet in India last year. From your book, I was surprised to know how globally these firms control about, correct me if I'm wrong, one third of all healthcare operations and about 10% of nursing homes in America. Um, You provide evidence as to how healthcare delivery has been suffering as a result of their profit motive. Um, Now, what I want to know is that profit motive in healthcare has been damaging in general. Uh, It's a systemic issue and might even exist in hospitals or healthcare centers where private equity is not involved. So what kind of data do we have about how the involvement of PE in healthcare specifically um, makes it damaging? Well, PE um, is responsible, for example. I mean, it's it's anecdotal, again, um, uh, only because they are so stealthy and it's very hard to assess their the, how far they've penetrated in the industry because these are private companies once they take them over, very hard to get information. But yes, I mean, the 11% of nursing homes uh, is probably a low number because nursing home ownership is so opaque. However, you can look at one perfect example of what happened when private equity took over the emergency departments of major hospitals, and that resulted in what was called surprise medical bills. Um, In this country, we have insurance. You, You assume that your insurance will cover you when you go to your local hospital because the hospital is in the network of the insurer. What the private equity-backed company did, which was a KKR-owned company, what they did was they carved out the emergency department from the coverage, the insurance coverage, and made it out of network. So when a person at their most vulnerable, ill, in an accident, you know, near death, goes to an emergency department, it's no longer in their insurance network. And they came home if they came home with huge bills. 
And this required this this generated such outrage that the our dysfunctional Congress actually did something about it and changed the law to curb the practices. So that's one example. See, they're extracting, uh, they're finding ways to extract more money from an industry that is really should be run for the benefit of patients. And so you had a situation where patients were being gouged, essentially, at their most vulnerable points. Part of the genesis of the book was it was it was during COVID. Right. And we were watching and wondering why is it that we were so ill prepared in our healthcare system to face the crisis? And that too had a lot to do with the consolidation of the hospital network, the consolidation of the physicians, the excess burden that was placed on them. And really what you start to realize is when you were putting together hospitals, you said, you know, we don't need the same number of yeah. beds. We don't need the same number of ventilators. We don't need the same amount of equipment. We can share it across our acquired companies. Or even and, people work, right. healthcare workers. Yes. So you started running it for maximization of profits rather than for the ability to provide necessary care in a crisis, which is really what the system should be built for. We have folks from the private F private equity executives featured in rich lists, and uh, they are also projected as millionaires. So, uh, as as philanthropists, so you know, be it Leon Black's contribution to the arts or KKR calling their investment in municipal water and sewage operations at Bayonne. I think yeah, uh-huh. I'm pronouncing it correctly as an right. act of good citizenship. Whereas you mentioned in the book, it actually led to a 50 percent increase in water bills for citizens. So how can people and members of the press take a more contextual view or a more holistic view when they talk about, say, uh, the philanthropy done by these people or when they talk about them in a certain light with respect to their contributions to society? So I find it, first of all, you know, ironic because we're essentially rewarding them for the philanthropy when in the U.S., they have a tax loophole that shields them from paying taxes on so many of these gains that they've received. And so I would argue that if they were paying their proper tax rate, if they weren't protected by this tax carve-out, there would be more funding for the arts, the sciences, the humanities at the front end, right? So in some sense, they're getting to claim this, you know, this wonderful noblesse oblige um philanthropic um image when the reality is if they were paying their taxes at the front end we probably would be able to fund a lot more of those necessary societal functions without them having to give philanthropy right you know my argument for how the media could do better in this regard is you know the media and business reporters are always chasing what is the next deal and these deals are so, you know, um, compelling and uh, the dollar amounts are enormous. The um, the impact is great on some people. But what they don't look at and what I wish they would look at more are the people on the other side of the transaction. Instead of just the deal makers, 
and the people who are being celebrated for making the deals and for wresting this company away from another raider, you know, instead of just the the horse race of the of the uh, you know acquisition itself, mm-hmm. let's look at who's affected by it. Let's look at the people on the other side of the transaction. Who are the losers in the game? And you will find that that group of people is far, far larger than the winners. But in our media, we focus on the deal makers, the winners, the swashbuckling business people, and we leave behind the workers, the pensioners, the customers. Right. even suppliers. So there's just an enormous group of people that is hurt by these deals that we never hear from. It's sad that many a times it's it's considered that that part of the story is just not interesting enough or newsworthy enough, which is which is quite unfortunate. But it's also true that, you know, we are all about clickbait and headlines today. Yeah. yeah. And so there's also no follow through. So if you look at if you look at one of the deals that we talked about um, in the book Noranda, um, there were great headlines when the deal was announced. There wasn't, to Gretchen's point, enough discussion of how many employees were at risk, mm-hmm. how that business had been a, a key part of its community for generations. But then on top of that, there was not really much headline follow through mm-hmm. on the fact that within six months. The private equity firm had paid itself a dividend and it no longer had any economic stake. It was playing with other people's money at that point. Mm-hmm. And that's when things really started going off the rails for the community. There was no real focus in the press on the fact that when they bank, when private equity bankrupted that company, the local community lost a full third of its funding for its school district. And okay. so the headline of the deal, to Gretchen's point, is a pro- is a piece of it, but there's also no follow through on the impacts of the deal. You know, these firms are very good at um, promoting their thesis that they are making companies more efficient, that they are a part of the capitalist system, uh, that they are doing good. They're very good at that. Um, but when you really push and ask them for the data behind that, behind those claims, they really aren't interested in providing it. Um, for instance, Blackstone, when we were researching the book, we told them our thesis. We told them that this is a book about the predation of private equity and how it hurts many people and enriches a few. Anyway, they, of course, said, we disagree with you. Um, And on the subject of job loss, Blackstone said, we have created 200,000 net new jobs at our portfolio companies in the past 15 years. And we said, well, that's great news. We would love to examine the data behind Mm -hmm. that. And they declined to provide it. So, you know, that just told me that, okay, you know, you have to, you can trust, but you have to verify. And if you aren't given the information to verify, then I'm just not going to be believing what you're saying about 200,000 net new jobs. So they're very good at spin and people accept those figures without asking for the proof. 
And that's a real disservice, I think, also. I completely agree with you, Gretchen. As a journalist, uh, uh, you know, there is really need for uh, more reportage, more thorough reportage and follow-ups. And uh, on that note, I would like to bring this podcast to an end. And it has been wonderful speaking with uh, the both of you. Well, thank you for your interest. Really great. Appreciate it. Bye-bye. So that was a conversation with Gretchen Morganson and Joshua Rosner about their book, These Are the Plunderers, How P.E. Runs and Wrecks America. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Divya Shekhar. See you next time.